The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, Philippians chapter 1, for those of you who have not been able to attend yet on Wednesday night, there are a lot of faces back that haven't been here in a while. I know as the vaccines go around, things get a little bit easier and a little bit safer to be out. I'm glad that you're able to be here. But if you haven't been able to attend on Wednesday nights, I'm basically teaching the book of Philippians on Wednesday night. And today, with Shane's absence, we're just going to continue with about the same. Now, not to review too much other than just to continue to remind you that this is a book about joy. It's a book about rejoicing. And it's written, of course, authored by God, but written in the pen of a man named Paul who obviously had had his struggles. Even at the case that while he's writing this letter, he's actually in a Roman prison and he is in dire straits as far as his situation. He's more than likely either uh, chained to a physical wall or to the floor, or in some cases was chained to a guard who would keep watch over him the entirety of that time. And so this is not the house arrest that you might think about Paul being in on some occasions. This is an actual imprisonment, and therefore he is struggling at this time. Now, we're going to see some text here in just a moment as we get farther in that proves to us that Paul, you know, he wasn't above the struggling. He wasn't above the anxiety and you may as well say it some of the depression or whatever might come along with that but he continued to come back and focus his mind on Christ to realize that the situation he was currently in was a matter of the providence of Christ Christ had either placed or allowed him to Sorry, be there and that within itself was a blessing and so he's thankful for that and he's proving to us that we can be thankful as well in our situations so as far as the section goes that we're in the midst of right now, basically it begins at around verse 12, which we've gotten past that and continues, in my mind at least, and you can outline it much differently, but continues through about verse 18. And as I've told you many times, when you look at the English translations, whether you're using the King James like I am, uh, many of you probably moving to the New American Standard Bible, that's what Shane is prim primarily using, whether or not you're looking in one or the other, if you'll follow the punctuation that's in those English translations, that can sometimes be a guide that is as helpful in an in-depth study of God's Word as the verse structure. Now, obviously, you would assume verse 1 has something to do with verse 2, but a little bit differently, and verse 3 with verse 4 and so forth. But if you'll follow that punctuation, in most cases, and I just say most, not all, but in most cases, that can be a tool. If you see a period, you can say, okay, whatever thought he was involved in, he's beginning to draw to a close. And it may be, and you can just ask yourself the question, as you start to read the following verse behind that period, that he's starting something new. If he's not, he's not. Uh, but you can oftentimes use that as a tool. And so that's something that I've used in breaking these sections down outlining the book, which I like to do extensively as I begin, begin to study a book. But uh, in that all being said, verses 12 through 18, in some senses, uh, make up a section. And so we'll start reading in verse 12, won't comment on it much at all. He says here, But I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And I know we talked about the idea of the furtherance, that is, even better translated for us, the progress the gospel is making. 
Uh, we pointed that out several times. As a matter of fact, in just a few verses, maybe about six or seven, we're going to see the exact same word being used for a very similar purpose. But he says, These things have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel, verse 13. So in my bonds in Christ, they are manifest in the palace and in other places. And so remember what Paul is saying here is, even though I'm in prison, the gospel is not bound. And even though I may be physically bound, the ability that I have to teach and the obligation that I have to teach is not bound either to the point that he's able to have new opportunities. And those opportunities included probably what the reference is here, the fact that he'd been able to teach the guards and particularly had probably taught by the word palaces may imply that he taught some of the imperial guards, which would be some of the guards that were right there at the very top. Uh, they were at the, the high echelon of life, and they would have had a lot of influence to those that were higher even than them, uh, such as the kings, the Caesars, whatever time frame you're talking about, we would put it in our terms like the president. And so verse 14, he added there, and many of my brethren in the Lord are waxing confident in my bonds, and so much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so because he's in prison, not only, number one, is he able to affect those that are around him, but he is able to affect those that are apart from him as well because he talks about us, and that's including of us, even as far out as we are, us having the ability to be more bold to speak because he's in prison. And we illustrated this several different times, several commented and added to it on, on Wednesday night. And just basically pointed out that if you have someone who's willing to go to prison, or even eventually as many of the apostles would, to die, to become martyrs for a cause, that within itself can uh, strengthen that cause. And people can snap their necks and say, okay, well, if, if he's willing to spend this time in prison and he's still not denying the gospel, then there must be some validity to that gospel. And that's kind of sort of what has happened here in this case. So verse 15, getting closer to where we're starting. And some indeed preach Christ of envy and of strife and some of goodwill. And the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerity, supposing to add to the affliction of my bond. And we pointed out in that that it was most likely the case, and it's what he's describing, I think, the Apostle Paul, that there were some who were going around preaching and as I like to oftentimes say it, popping their proverbial suspenders to try to show everybody, you know, look at, look at me. Look at the authority I have. Look at the ability I have. Look at all the things that are, I'm gathered around. In more modern times, you might say, somebody might say, well, look at the, look at the church, you know, I'm preaching at. Or they may go as far as to say pastoring over. Look at, look at where I am. Obviously, I'm doing something right because there are throngs of people coming to hear me speak. Well, that could be the case and is sometimes the case. A talented individual, someone who has some extra level of ability, maybe it was even God-given. If they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching the truth, it's still possible that people could be coming and saying, well, I just like the way he, he delivers. Not necessarily anything wrong with that so long as they're continuing to listen carefully and say, but is it the gospel? Is it the truth? And in Paul's day, seemingly, there were men who were preaching the gospel solely for the purpose of envy and strife and, and causing contention, and they were not being sincere in that. Verse 17 goes on and says, But the other, rather of love, knowing that I am set 
for the defense of the gospel. Now, as I started pointing out as we were closing on Wednesday night, again, I'm teaching from the King James on this time, and if you're looking at another translation, NASB would be one in particular, the New American Standard Bible, you're seeing something there that's a, a different enough, at least, that you probably said, oh, what, what verse is he in? Where is he reading? Where, you know, where exactly is he? Well, there is a big difference between the way that the translations word things. I don't understand exactly why, other than I have some guesses I'll share with you in a moment but in particularly verse 16, 17, and 18. So if you're using a digital copy, you're on a phone or whatever, and some of you are, uh, you, can, you can swap back and forth and say, okay, the King James says this, the NESB says this, and you may have access to a dozen more, and they say something slightly different. Um, to basically line that out, and I just made a little copy for myself, and this was, again, just a computer and spit it out, and here we go. I've got the translation side by side here. The ASV, the American Standard Version, which for many, many years the majority of us may have used. The ESV, which is a much more modern translation, a good translation nonetheless. The KJV, or King James Version, which I'm reading from. The NASB, and that's the 95 version that Shane uses. It's been updated twice since then, but the 95 is very reliable. Not that the others aren't, it just happens to be the one he chose. The New King James Version, which some of you may use, and then I've got a translation that I reference all the time. I wouldn't recommend it for your daily studies, but you can get it on these electronic versions for free, and that is the Williams Translation. Now, as my disclaimer, when you've got a translation that has a man's name on it, you can probably assume he, he sat down and tried to do that himself. So he didn't have the input, uh, may not have had the input of dozens of people or hundreds of people, uh, some of us have access to the Hugo, I call it the Hugo McCord translation. He was a member of the Lord's Church that actually preached here uh, through the years in meetings and such. But it's called the Everlasting Gospel Translation. You may have that. Very accurate translation, one that I enjoy referencing. Uh, but as far as the mainstream translations, I'll read to you a little bit about out of each. Again, verse 16 and 17 is what we're looking at right now. We're going to be looking for a particular uh, idea in just a moment. But King James translation, I'm going to read 16 and 17 together. You can compare to whatever, you can read along. Says, The one preached Christ of contention, not of sincerity, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love and of knowing that I am set. And that's the word I would emphasize and highlight if you are looking at the King James that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So there we have no mention of the, and it's what we're eventually going to get to, we have no mention of Paul being where he is because he was put there, or doing what he does because he was put there. So I put right beside that in the New American Standard Bible, NASB, that some of us are beginning to use. Here's what it says, verse 16 and 17. Read the opposite and listen carefully. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed, and I think that's pretty good, that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17 says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, and thinking to cause me distress in my 
imprisonment. Now, as far as other translations that I named, the American Standard Bible, verse 16, says that he was there because he was set, S-E-T, set to be there. The ESV says, I have been put here. The King James makes no mention in verse 16 of that. The NASB I just read said, I have been appointed here. Uh, the New King James makes no mention of such. And the Williams translation, which again, I would only use for reference, um, makes no mention of that other than to say, I am providentially put here. So probably a little bit deeper, probably a little bit more suggestive than what we might need. I think it gives some good ideas, but probably a little bit more suggestive in that. So why do I even mention all of that? Well, I mention it because I knew some of you had other translations and you were looking across and saying, well, where is he at? That's fine. Uh, but I really do mention it because when you look at those comparisons between 16 and 17, even though they sound different in various translations, they're saying the same thing. Although in this case, I think some of the modern translations probably say it more clearly. The King James again says, not in verse 16, but in verse 17, that I am set for the gospel. That's verse, uh, reading the whole verse again, verse 17, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. New King James, or New American Standard Bible said, I am here because, I got to pull it back out. I have been appointed for the defense of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, and these words are all there. If you back this up and you look in the Greek language, and, and I'm not really able to do that. I can use tools that assist me in doing that. If you were to go back, and none of us would, would be able to, but if you were to go back 2,000 years and be able to sit down beside these apostles as they write these things, or beside some of those scribes that basically all they did with with their life, which we appreciate, is they took the copies of these letters that were sent around, like the letter Paul writes to the Philippians, and they basically just went word for word and went back and forth and wrote those things down. They made an extra copy. They did what the printing press does or what a digital press would do today. That's all they did. They sat down and, and made those copies. And in more cases than not, they were very strict. Uh, they were very astute in what they did, and they were very focused on just trying to just make an exact duplicate copy. You know, if, if, and we don't do so much of it anymore in pen and paper, but if I were to write a letter, uh, say I want to write a letter to my mama, and uh, at, before I mail it to her, I walk in the room and I say, Cameron, can you make me a copy of this? And he looks around and he said, well, the printer's tore up. I know, but make me a copy of this. He'd write down, take a pen, and he might write a copy. And he may get it extremely close. He may get it exactly right, or he may, and I would doubt it, but he may take the liberty to write an entirely different letter to completely change that. Now, thankfully, through the providence of God, that has not happened. But the idea of wording being slightly different between one copy, we would refer to them as manuscripts or another, is altogether possible. How do you eliminate that? We spent eight weeks on Wednesday night discussing this, so I can't spend eight minutes on it today even. Probably shouldn't spend eight seconds, but we, we can have confidence in that because there's so many copies that you can take if you've got 25 copies and you lay them all down and say, okay, well, there's a variance between this one and this one and that one, but you know the other uh, 22 of them here, they say exactly the same thing. What do you go with? You go with the 22. 
You go with the ones that seem to be more related, that seem to be more closely put together, and you may not completely disregard these. They have good information, probably say the same thing. Uh, but you go with it like that. And the benefit of such is the more and more, as we went through the decades and, and even the centuries, the more and more that uh, these copies, manuscripts were discovered, the more information that was had, uh, translators could go and kind of proof those things and go back and say, okay, maybe we should word our English translation, for us would be English at least, maybe we should word that a little bit different to try to get the right idea into this. The King James translators had far less, because of just the discoveries that had been made, had far less of those copies to work from than, for example, the New American Standard Bible. Is that to say the King James is wrong? No, I don't say that at all, because it tells us the same thing in different words, even by just shifting from verse 16 to verse 17. Paul said, I have been set here. I have been appointed to be here. I have been providentially placed here or put here, as that William translation said. All of that because I'm here for the defense of the gospel. Now, what I say to that, and we'll move on from any of that type of thought. What I say to that is, Paul, how could you be right? If you were supposed to be defending the gospel, which he did by teaching, by preaching, uh, by studying, that sort of thing, with people, as we might call it. If you're supposed to be defending the gospel, wouldn't you be better off doing that out in the streets, as he had done so many times before in the synagogues? Wouldn't you be better doing that, going from house to house and door to door? Well, in some senses, yes. As far as the numbers, maybe. As far as the, the, the scorecard, if he would have kept one, would have gone, maybe so. But what he's telling the brethren in the context, verses 12 down so far to where we've gotten at least is, the fact that I'm here in prison, that didn't stop the gospel. That didn't change the gospel. And the fact, as he just mentioned, the preceding verses, verses 14, 15, 16, the fact that there are men that are running all over the countryside and, and they're basically saying, you know what, I'm actually better preaching than Paul, so you're okay that he's in prison. And you, you probably should listen to me anyway because, you know, Something must not be right. Look where he landed. So many times we think about that mindset and we think about what, and this was mentioned by someone just a week or two ago, I forget who, but uh, we think about that mindset and we think about how Job's friends treated him. You know, Job's life turned upside down, inside out, upside over, and his friends said, what's your problem? What have you done? You, you must not have done this right. There may have been folks, folks that said that about Paul. You know, Paul, if you were such a, an apostle, if you were an apostle of Jesus and such a, a great tool of his, how, why are you sitting in prison? Paul's answer to that is, I'm here for the defense of the gospel. Well, guess what? That's what he was doing on the outside. It's what he's doing on the inside. And Paul's attitude toward that, and that's the key. If, you know, sometimes I learn from Scripture, and we all do as Bible students, we learn from Scripture because we have a thus saith the Lord, you know, book, chapter, verse, word for word, this is the command, I shall do it. That type of thing. Love one another. There it is, clear, no argument, no discussion. Other times we learn by looking into these men, knowing a little bit at least, you don't have to know everything, but knowing a little bit about their situation and being able to step back and say, he said that when? He was where? He was enduring what? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
He says, I have been put here. I have been appointed to be right here. Now, you take that into modern terms, and I, I see this all the time. There's a page, and uh, I mean, you, you're welcome to go and look for it and find it. Those of who are Facebookers and all that kind of stuff, you can get on Facebook, there's a page. Basically, the majority of members of the church, sometimes there's some things that bleed in. But there's a page on Facebook called Preachers for Pulpits. And the four is the number four. Preachers for Pulpits. If you have access to look at that page or whatever, you can scroll through it and you'll see what it is. It's, it's churches and preachers on both sides who are either looking for a congregation to work with or a congregation looking for a preacher to work with them. Back and forth. And you'll see every matter of description. Some of them will just say, we just want a fella who knows the Bible and is willing to preach it. Hey, I'd try out for that. You know, I'd go see about that. Others will be like, duties will include, and it'll be 44 pages of the office duties and, the, you, know, you know, all the ministerial duties this guy, and they may get down at the end and say, and occasionally fill a pulpit. Nah, uh uh-uh. But even aside from that, I, I know as preachers, a lot of times we'll scroll through a page similar to that and say, you know what, that congregation right there, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal. I mean, four-bedroom, three-bathroom house on a lake and, you know, right near 10,000 acres of hunting land, and I like to hunt and all this good stuff. And they got, you know, 1,600 members and 12 elders and 44 deacons, and that's a good place. They pay $175,000 a year. I mean, I, me and my wife, we headed out that way. We, but then there's another ad that says, uh, you know, we're in a small town. We struggle. A lot of people around here are evil. Uh, a lot of things going on. There's gambling. There's, there's prostitution. And we just need some help. I don't know about all that. I don't know if I want to head that way. Paul, just assuming, inspired to write such, in this verse would have said, I'll take that. Matter of fact, when he went into Ephesus and Corinth, just two examples, he basically went to a place like that. Now, bigger, bigger cities, but situations that were extremely hard. Now he's in prison. And in prison, he says, I'm going to read this again, verse 17, but others of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Verse 18, King James, what then, notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice, and yea, I will rejoice. So again, just some of my thought, some of my suggestion, I think what has happened, just my personal thought doesn't have to be yours, I think what has happened in the context, at least from where we started out, this type of idea back into verse 12, 13, 14 particularly, and even until 18, 19 here, I think someone, perhaps Epaphroditus, chapter 2 and verse 25, has come to Paul on behalf of the church, and he's asked Paul several questions. And a lot of the questions have to do with how are you doing, and how is the gospel doing? You know, how are things working with you in prison? Because a lot of people are concerned. They may not be accusing you like all these bad men, these evil, uh, strife-filled, contentious, uh, just the things that were, they were called, those who envy, do, do not preach out of sincerity. They may not have that mindset, but they're at least still concerned. 
How are things going? And the answers that Paul is giving even now is, look, if there are men out there, verse 18, who are preaching Christ, even with pretense, and that's the idea of being a show-off, even with the idea of them being in pretenses state, the truth of Christ is preached. That's the question. Is the truth being preached? Paul said it is. Then if the truth is being preached, I'm rejoicing. Now, I don't necessarily have that mindset. I told you on a Wednesday night, maybe it was Wednesday a week ago, there are people that's crossed my paths, preachers, fellow preachers that crossed my paths. I just, I mean, we're human. I just don't like those cats. And I don't like their attitude, don't like, you know, some of the things they do. Comes down to it. And this is not just a preacher thing, this is a Christian thing. Do those individuals, could they use an attitude adjustment as we'd say? Yeah, probably so. Do they need the mind of Christ, which is what chapter 2 is going to spring into hard and heavy? Yeah, absolutely. So do I. But in their carrying the gospel and looking just strictly at that, even if they are contentious, hard to get along with, even if they are sometimes strifeful, you know, they, they'll get in an argument quick-like. Even if they do have some pride in their hearts, even if they do have pretense and they're probably just there to show off, if the gospel itself is being preached, Paul said, I can rejoice with that. Now, I stand back and I'm not Paul. But if Paul is trying to present what the mind of Christ is like, so should I. Now, would he assist those people? Yes, there are letters that are written, in, at least not entire letters, but there are times when Paul addresses people. The book of Acts records some of them, including when Paul addressed Peter and had to go down and, and get in Peter's face pretty much and correct Peter some of the things he had been doing. But nonetheless, he says, I rejoice. Now, some of the things that you can look to um, in that, uh, which bleeds into verse 19, he says, For I know that this shall turn to my, next word, salvation. What other words? You got another translation. What other word do you see about where the word salvation is? Deliverance. For I know that my salvation, some translations say deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, they may put me down, they may try to put me out. But at the end of the day, if the gospel is being preached and they're, whether they're trying to harm me to continue to have me imprisoned in my bonds, he says, I know in the end I'll be saved from that. Now, there are several ways to view this. Salvation, deliverance. The first level is there are different words in different translations. Why? Well, to be honest with you, because the word salvation right here means deliverance. You know, we talk about what we need to do to be saved. And we might go through and we, we biblically would do this. We, we like to use a hand. The good thing we ended up with these five fingers and not eight or ten, but on one hand. Uh, but we look at that and we say, well, to be saved, I need to hear. I need to believe. I need to repent. I need to confess. I need to be baptized. We may say that. And that's true. That's, that's honest. But what are we really looking for? Well, you say, well, we're looking for salvation. Yeah, we're looking for a home in heaven. Absolutely. We're looking to be home with God, for sure. Was Paul looking for that? You can do this, because he's just like us in that manner. 
He's looking to be delivered. Delivered to God. Delivered to God in, in judgment. Delivered to God in eternity. Yes. And that's absolutely correct. There's a flip side of this coin contextually for the context that is above. And we're going to mention some context below in a moment. But for the context above, Paul is not just being delivered, just being delivered. I said just being delivered spiritually. Paul's hoping also for a physical deliverance. He's hoping also to one day not be in this prison and to be able to continue the work that he had done for so many years. He's hoping one day not to be in the hands of these men and in the bonds of these chains, but to be back out there, we would say, on the streets, in the homes, everywhere he would go, and sharing the gospel of Christ, defending, verse 17, the gospel of Christ. He wanted and needed deliverance. In another sense, I'm just expanding off the same. Deliverance at home to God, yes. Deliverance from the bonds I'm in, perhaps. In another sense, Paul knew that he had had deliverance. And this is where the next context comes in. One case, Paul had been delivered from the old law. Paul had lived majority of his life to this point. I know things have turned, the tide has turned, the church has been established, Christ has come, bled and died and been resurrected, even ascended. Paul had lived, like many of the people to whom he is writing had lived, the majority of life under the old law, which in some sense it had held them bound. And they needed to be delivered from it. They needed to be freed from it. And, of course, the freeing from it was through the gospel, which, again, he had defended and was in defense of, verse 16, as well as in verse 18. In another sense, Paul had been delivered and would continue to be delivered from sin. Do I need that? Uh, can I continue to do like that? Uh-huh. I need that, too. <laughs> I want to be delivered over to God. Want to be delivered from any bonds that I might be in? Want to be delivered from, and have been delivered, us in our time, from the old law? Want to be delivered from sin? But again, contextually, what else is added? Paul wanted to be delivered, not to discount the, the ones I just mentioned, but Paul likewise wanted to be delivered and had been from himself. You say, where do you get that? That's the next section. That's the, that's the, the most well-known, famous verse of the text. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which is just right down the page from what we're reading. Paul was not selfish. Paul could have easily said, well, if those men, former verses have got the attitude they've got. I don't care if they preach truth or not, they need to be stopped. I don't care what in the world is going on if they're making accusation and they're doing something to make my life hard. They need to be stopped. Their mouths need to be shut. They need to be moved out of the way. I need to be let out of prison. I can't do my work in here. 
My life's not what I wanted it to be. I can't imagine it's what God wants. So whatever God's ideas are, uh, must be somehow they've been confused. Maybe God's plan has been foiled. Not his mindset. He said if they want to be envious and strife-filled and, and contentious, that's okay. Some preach Christ out of love. Some goodwill. I know that where I am, Paul would say, I'm here because of God. God has set me here. God has placed me here. God has put me here. God has appointed me to be here. And so therefore, verse 19, I know, that is I absolutely know, that this is, shall turn to my salvation. How's that accomplished, Paul? He says, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit and Jesus Christ. How much does prayer actually affect the lives of us? If you've got an answer, I'd love to hear it, a real answer. I would say immeasurably. Now, there's biblical evidence somewhat for that, immeasurably. As in, I'm not going to say, well, you know, praying does a good bit of good. Or praying does a whole lot of good. Or praying sometimes does some good. You can't level it like that. I think a reference to prayer, because it is the way that we communicate with God, it is the, the main terms in which we are able to give God you know, other than he sees, but to give God our mind in a positive way is expressed by this same penman, Paul, in Ephesians 3 and verse 20. He says there, unto him, he's pointing straight at God, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. How is that, Paul? according to his power that worketh within us. He mentioned a word there, three letters, ask. He can do more than we ask. Now, what God's choice is, what God chooses to do, what God decides to do, may be different, and oftentimes it's very different from the way that we consider things, the way that we think, the outlook that we would like to find. But God has the power. You know, you see people all the time that are in situations. People in this room are in situations where they're struggling with something. Everybody's struggling with something. They're struggling with something big, something huge, something that no one else would want to endure. So maybe, it's, maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's a relationship problem. Maybe it's a financial. All these things can line up because we have to live this life in a physical sense, at least now. People struggle. People, people just have so difficulties, so much difficulty sometimes. And when they're able to continue to look to God and continue to gain strength from God and continue seemingly to say to God, you know what, I know I'm in a situation. I know I'm here. I, I, I'm not going to claim I'm the biggest fan of such, but I know what, God? It's your will. Again, whether it be that you were put there or just allowed to be there, it's your will. And so the effect that one can have on another's life, 
within that right there is huge. You know, anytime anybody tries to tell a, a, a story or make an illustration about faith, what do they generally do? They name someone who you would think would have no faith in that situation, who would have never made it through this. And they always say, well, I remember Sister So-and-So, you know, and what she endured. I remember Brother So-and-So and what he endured and struggles he had. I remember how he never gave up. Well, he never gave up on God. She never took her mind off or focus from God. That's Paul. So Paul says, I, I can be saved from this. I, I know my salvation is coming. Yes, in heaven, but even from this place, even from this situation. Because it's of the prayer, through the prayer and the supply of the Spirit, and watch this next phrase, of Jesus Christ. Now look at his mind. Verse 20. He adds to that, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified, uh, shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, we're going to spend some time on the verse I mentioned a moment ago, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But to me, verse 20 is just as impressive from our perspective as anything in here. Again, given his situation, given his uh, ordeal that he was enduring at that time, Paul says, I have according to my earnest expectation. Other translations say things differently. I don't know if I... Managed to accidentally get that printed. What does uh, something else say in verse 20? That first phrase, according to my earnest expectation. Same thing. It's somewhat the idea of just the general hope, which hope is going to be used in the next verse. The earnest expectation, and I was very interested. I probably spent more time than I... No, that's not possible. I was almost said I spent more time than I needed to looking at this. I don't think you can. You can't spend too much time in God's Word. But I looked at that phrase for hours, a couple of times this week. I can show you what it means better than I can tell you, but I'll tell you too. Paul said this, According to my... The phrase right there means to stretch the neck, to crane the neck, and to look. The idea and the way that we see it in the translation, it is his earnest. We might say his honest, his sincere, his fullest expectation. You say, why do you even mention that? Well, I think the illustration of what the word means with the craning of the neck is a big deal. But I really think, and more than that, it's the fact that, one, this word or phrase that was chosen for Paul by God, inspired of God to write, this phrase, the earnest expectation, just like we see it, the words, there's a word that backs up these two words. Guess how many times it's used in the New Testament? 
only Paul. I'm not saying that only Paul got this, because obviously through the teaching that is laying on these pages, hopefully we can get this. But at least Paul was the only one chosen and set to write this. He said, it is my earnest expectation. It's my deepest desire, my hope. I think the thought, not the word, but I think the thought of this is found in the account that we have of the prodigal son and the way that the father handled that son coming home. You know, we always imagined it, whether it was true or not, we always imagined it and illustrated it to say that every day the father looked across the fields, stood on that front, I call it the front porch, they didn't have nearly such, but stood on that front porch and looked across those fields and every day he hoped, he looked, he desired, he expected his son to come home. That's a picture somewhat of this same idea, this same phrase. Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope. And so there's some difference between the earnest expectation and a simple hope, or else there wouldn't be two different words and two different phrases to describe it. Now, hope, of course, we would say is the idea of expecting something as well. He said, in my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. So what do you really want out of this, Paul? He said, I don't ever want to be ashamed of what I'm doing. I don't ever want to have to be ashamed of the situation I'm in. Now, how easy would that be? Well, I'm already illustrated as such, but Paul could have been imprisoned, uh, taken into prison, and, you know, spent maybe a night or two and, Saw how difficult things were, how rough it got, and called one of the guards over, maybe the one that, if be, that was chained to him, and said, you know, I've been thinking about this. That, you know, I was arrested, and I was preaching the gospel, and then I cast out those demons, and a lot of people got upset, because I turned, I know I turned the city upside down. But, you know, that's kind of funny how that worked out, because I'm here now, and, oh, man, some of that stuff I said well, wasn't right. It just wasn't true, and, uh, if you're going to let me go, I'll be happy to go out and let everybody know it was a lie. And I'll go on about my, you won't see me in this town again. Wasn't his mindset. He said he earnestly expected not to be ashamed and was preach and teach with boldness. We'll have to stop right there for this hour, but I appreciate your attention, your comment.